Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Royal Academy. I'm Alison Bracker. I'm the Events and Lectures Manager here at the RA. I'm delighted to welcome you to tonight's special event featuring William Boyd and Ed Stoppard. We have collaborated with Pindrop to present a wonderful program this evening, and I am going to hand over to Simon Oldfield and Elizabeth Day, who will introduce tonight's speakers, and I very much hope that you enjoy the evening. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to welcome you all here tonight, and the two superb narrators we have, William Boyd and Ed Stoppard, and its collaboration that we have with the Royal Academy. It's a really amazing opportunity for us. Um, for those of you who are new to Pindrop, we present short stories working with world-class narrators in incredible locations like this one here, marrying the two worlds of art and literature. I think it's safe to say we're sort of doing that tonight and ticking all those boxes. First off, we have William Boyd, one of the most acclaimed, best-selling authors of his generation, the author of countless bestsellers, screenplays, and collection of short stories, including Any Human Heart, The New Confessions, Waiting for Sunrise, and most recently, the new James Bond novel, Solo. William is one of those rare authors who has achieved both literary and commercial success, which is such a huge achievement. Um, and this evening, we're going to be treated to an unpublished or a world exclusive of a short story set in the contemporary art world and introduce us to a new heroine, Bethany Melmoth. Our second narrator this evening is uh, the superb actor Ed Stoppard. Uh, he'll be familiar to many of you from his roles in Oscar-winning films such as The Pianist to TV dramas including uh, Upstairs, Downstairs and Silent Witness. He's also a great stage actor. He's appeared in The Glass Menagerie and Arcadia on stage. But most importantly of all, for the purposes of this evening, he also played the role of Ben Leaping in the Channel 4 adaptation of Any Human Heart, which just goes to show he's got great literary taste. Um, Ed will be reading More Than Just a House, a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It was originally published in 1933, and it's a beautiful meditation on what architecture means to us on a human scale so obviously felt like it was a particularly apt story for this fantastic backdrop it really is such a privilege to be here as Pindrop collaborating with the Royal Academy when Simon and I first founded Pindrop it was top of our list of dream destinations so it's a real real pleasure to see you all here tonight and I hope you enjoy the exhibition afterwards thank you so much without further ado we'll hand over to William Boyd Good evening, everyone. I hope you can hear me uh, loud and clear at the back. Just shout if my voice goes quiet. Um, this is, yes, a world premiere exclusive reading. You can see I'm reading from TypeScript. It's not a book. Um, well, I'm going to read two short stories, in fact, that feature um, this young girl called Bethany Melmoth. And I'd better explain a little bit about it, I think, to set it in context. Uh, I think I know why I decided to adopt the persona of a 20-something girl to write what is now nine short stories that I've written featuring Bethany because 
for perfectly legitimate reasons, I found I knew a lot of 20-something young girls at one stage in my life who were goddaughters and nieces and friends of theirs. And so I was watching these uh, young people and their lives and their, how they were drifting in particular, uh, not surprisingly in contemporary Britain. Uh, and I thought I would try to pin down something about their lives. So Bethany is, in a way, typical, and there are Bethany's everywhere in the world. There are Bethany's in Japan and America and Finland and France, but the Bethany I'm writing about is squarely in London. A London girl, um, she, her parents are divorced, she has no siblings, She's um, 23, I think, at the time of this story. She doesn't know what she wants to be or become. She's had a go at various professions. Um, she's tried to write a novel. She's been an extra in a film. Uh, she wants to be a photographer. You get the picture. Um, the funny thing about this story is that when Elizabeth asked me if I had anything vaguely art-related, uh, I did because one of Bethany's short-term careers is in the contemporary art world. So this is a story I'm going to start with, uh, and I called it Snapshots, but in fact the, all the stories are really called The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth, because that's what she's dreaming of, not, dreaming, not just dreaming about a career, but dreaming about love, of course. And she does have rather a lot of boyfriends, Bethany. Um, but uh, this story is called Snapshots, uh, and it deals with her sort of abiding ambition to be a photographer. So, here we go. Snapshots. Bethany Melmoth stands outside the No Parking Gallery in Dalston, waiting for the owner and gallerist, Howard Christopher, to open the door for him, for her. He's always there, no matter how early she arrives. And sometimes she wonders if he lives in his office, though she knows full well he has a large house and a large family issue of three wives in Victoria Park. Coming, Bethany, darling. She can hear his deep voice calling from the back somewhere. He's a friend of her mother, and it was this friendship that secured Bethany the job as a gallerina in no parking. The gallery is named after a prominent no parking sign set on the curb outside its front door. Thinking about names, Bethany realizes that Howard Christopher's name is in fact two Christian names. Funny that, she thinks, not having a proper surname. Bethany goes down to Howard's basement office with his morning jug of fresh orange juice. They chat about the day's business, one exhibition leaving, another preparing to be installed, as Howard opens his fridge to take out the vodka bottle. He tops up his glass of orange juice with an inch or so of vodka. He waves the bottle at Bethany, but she declines. Howard takes out a ready-rolled spliff from his cigarette case and lights up. Very excited about the new show, he says. He looks at her shrewdly. You all right, lovely baby? Bethany says she's fine, thanks. In fact, Bethany is troubled this morning by something she read in the newspaper on her short but arduous bus journey to Dalston from Stoke Newington. The average lifespan of a human being, she had read, is around a thousand months. This is entirely reasonable, she understands, and logical, but it has made her ill at ease. 
It doesn't seem nearly enough. Somehow much worse than knowing one lives three score years and ten. Seventy years seems improbably long. One thousand months appears almost terrifyingly brief. She does a quick calculation. She has already used up 272 months. And what has she achieved in her life? Nothing. Rod Hurt, the sculptor, supervises the deposition of his show. Bethany stands by his side with a clipboard as they go through the various works. Bin it, Hurt says. Bin it, bin it. Keep the wood. Bin it, bin it. Hurt's show was called Missing. And what was missing was the artwork itself. There was a presentation of the raw material, a symbolic block of wood, a chunk of marble, a pile of clay, sack of plaster, planks of driftwood, seashore pebbles, and so forth. Hurt had made a sculpture from similar materials and had then destroyed it. So set beside the granite rock was a pile of granite chips. By the tree trunk, a mound of wood shavings, a cone of ash by the driftwood, iron girder transformed to crushed steel ingot, and so forth. Bethany had said to him at the show's opening that she kept trying to imagine what was in between. Exactly, that's the point, Hurt said, and what you imagined was probably better than what I did. Seeing the wanton and carefree dismantling of Hurt's show had increased Bethany's angst, and it is angst, she realizes, genuine angst, not the blues or PMT or simply feeling fed up. She is going through a minor but compelling crisis of an ontological sort. The message of Hurt's absent artworks, plus the knowledge that she has only around 700-odd months left of life on this planet, has shaken her up somewhat. She will be 23 soon, and all she has to show for these years, these months, is a series of truncated false starts, leaving college and abandoning her media studies course, failing to get into drama school, the novel she started and set aside, unfinished, her short, unhappy experience as a film extra. She could go on and on. Nothing seemed to click or fit. Everything she dreamed of being appeared to stall, or she was distracted, or else other people messed it up. And look at her now. Now she was a VARP, V-A-R-P, a vaguely art-related person. The VARP acronym was something else she'd read about, and it had made her unhappy. She had thought that becoming a gallerina might open doors, might help her with her photography project and the book she was planning to accompany it. But now she wondered if it was just another dead end. Still, at least the next show in No Parking was by a photographer, Fernando Ben, not that she'd heard of him. Perhaps this might be the opportunity she was waiting for. On the walk from the bus stop after her day's work, Bethany passes a derelict garage. In the middle of its forecourt, a small plant seems to be growing out of the concrete. She takes her camera out, a little digital Leica, and photographs it. It's a small, vigorous buddleia that has somehow managed to root itself, grow and flourish in a minute fissure. Bethany's photography project and its eventual book is a series of images of plants growing out of rocks, or bricks, or paving stones. It's called Suffering from Optimism. And this shot of the Budlia in its patch of oil-stained garage forecourt might be the perfect cover for it. She has many photos of Budlias. 
She marvels at how they seem to grow in impossible, unnourished places, on roof edges, in dry gutters, in the grouting of brick walls. In fact, the buddleia is probably her favorite flower. Fernando Ben's show at No Parking is called War slash War. It consists of a series of huge photographs, six feet by six, of famous war photographs. Robert Kappa, Hubert Van Ness, Don McCullen, Philip Jones Griffiths, Tim Page, all classic shots, almost all familiar to Bethany. Fernando Ben has cut them out of books, pinned them on his studio wall, photographed them so they are framed by the background and blown them up. Ben is standing in the middle of the gallery, idly supervising the hang. He's a man in his 40s wearing a leather jacket, jeans, and red cowboy boots. He hasn't shaved for a few days. Great, fantastic, he says. No, no, leave it there, it's fine. Bethany asks him if she can get him a coffee or a water. I'll have one of Howard's vodka and oranges, Ben says. When Bethany hands him his drink, she senses him looking at her up and down. You're new, he says. You weren't at no parking for my last show. What's your racket, darling? Bethany says she's interested in photography. Photography is dead, Ben says with a cough laugh. Who was it who said that? Now we're in the digital age, photography has lost its veracity because it can be manipulated so easily. Yeah, the photographic image has lost its power. But you're a photographer, Bethany says, unreflectingly. How can you say that? I'm not a photographer, Ben says, a little wearily. I'm an artist who chooses to work in lens-based media. <laughs> he gestures at his photos. These are digital pictures of photos shot on film. It's the only way they can achieve any power, any veracity. Ben favors the glottal stop in his conversation. Veracity. He smiles at her like a cannibal eating the brain of his enemy to make him stronger. Yeah? When Bethany arrives home that night at the house in Stoke Newington where she lives with her boyfriend, Casimir's, she is still thinking about Fernando Ben's assertion and wondering, therefore, if her own project is rendered meaningless should she abandon suffering from optimism, another dead end. She goes into the kitchen and lets out a little shriek of surprise and alarm. Ten swarthy men wearing jeans and T-shirts are sitting around the kitchen table, eating food out of cartons. One man stands up and speaks to her, smilingly, amiably, in a language she doesn't understand or recognize. She gives him a wave, turns and goes upstairs to her and Casimir's bedroom and locks the door. When Casimir's comes home late that night, he explains, it's a new venture, he says, it's going to make him a lot of money. He's bought 22-year-old Ford Mondeos at a car auction for £1,000 each. The men downstairs are his new drivers. With his drivers and his cars, he's now in a position to bid for all the London borough contracts. Council work, he tells her. Now I can undercutting all English minicab firms by 50%, 60%, even. No competition. Bethany asks a few more questions. Yes, Casimir says, the men will be living here in the basement. They have TV, they have food, they have bed and roof. They're very happy. I pay them one pound per hour, four times what they do in their country. Casimir kisses her as if he senses her anxieties. They will work 80 hours a week. You'll never see them. He outlines the future as he sees it. First 20 cars, then 40, then 200. Every London borough will be coming to him. You must meet Chaz, Casimir says. 
Who is Chaz? He's my Englishman. You must have an English for meetings and phone. In no parking, Bethany sits at a small desk looking at Fernando Ben's photos of photos of men at war, thinking of Casimir's. This is what drew her to him, she realized. It wasn't simply his rangy frame, his energy, his almost disturbingly pale, pale blue eyes. He achieved things. He made events conform to his wishes. He had ambitions, and he realized them. She picks up the phone and calls him. She says her mother is unwell, and she has to go home and look after her for a few days. I'll text you, Bethany, Casimir says. Take care. Bethany hands in her notice the day war, war, is due to open. Howard seems barely to register the news. Fine, fine, give my love to your mother. As she's about to leave the room, he calls her back. It's nothing to do with that dirty bugger Neville, is it? He asks. Neville hasn't jumped on you or anything, has he? Made a pass. Who's Neville, Bethany asks. Neville Ben. Sorry, Fernando, I keep forgetting. No, no, Bethany says, nothing to do with Neville. To celebrate her joblessness, Bethany goes to a bar before catching a tube back to South Kensington, where her mother lives. Her mother is pleased but also irritated to see her daughter back at home again, Bethany can tell. Casimir has texted her a couple of times to ask if she's missing him. It's early evening and the bar is quiet. Bethany looks at the list of cocktails and orders one called a crack of doom. It has many powerful alcoholic ingredients, some with names she doesn't recognize. She wants to smoke a cigarette and think about her plan and is annoyed she can't. She's found a website called flyleaf.com where photographic books can be made. Flyleaf.com supplies a format. You provide images and text and pay them £120. Two weeks later, you receive a bound hardback book with glossy pages. Further books can be ordered at £20 each. Suffering from optimism will be born at last. At last, she... Her thoughts are interrupted by the sight of the barman throwing a bottle to the ceiling and catching it behind his back. He balances the cocktail shaker on his knee and pours in liquor from a full arm's length away. He jams the cap on the shaker and spins it on a fingertip. Then he juggles four shot glasses, snatches one, sets it in front of her, catches the other three at the same time, and finally serves her the drink. It's a fizzing dark purple with a dense orange froth. Wait, I have to set it on fire, the barman says. Just kidding. It's a cool drink. Don't get many requests for it. He's a small, stocky young guy with a broad, open face. He has a thin stripe of beard running down his chin from his lower lip. He's a clearly incredibly fit and muscled. Bethany is usually drawn to tall, skinny guys, but there's something about this person. That was amazing, she says. How did you learn to do all that stuff? I used to be a juggler, he says, but there's no money in juggling, so I became a mixologist. All these tricks are very easy, beginner's juggling, but it looks good in a bar. He smiles at her. Bethany can tell he likes her. I'm Bethany, she says. I'm Hunter, he says. Is that your first name or your surname, Bethany asks. Hunter Doig, he says. Hunter's a first name in Scotland. Bethany sips her crack of doom. It's very strong. Hunter leans his muscled forearms on the bar. So, Bethany, Hunter says, what do you do? Bethany pauses a moment, sets her drink down. I'm a photographer, she says. Well, that's what I was going to read. 
And then Elizabeth said, no, no, you've got to read the sequel. Um, what happens next? Um, it's not very long. It doesn't have anything to do with art gallery, I'm afraid. But um, I think we need to know what happens between Bethany and Hunter. Bethany Melmoth steps forward and takes a bow. Big round of applause for my lovely assistant, Bethany, Hunter Doig cries. A few people clap dutifully, but they're more interested in Hunter in his top hat, balancing on his unicycle, managing to keep it upright without moving. Bethany picks up the Indian clubs and hands them to him, one after the other, trying to keep the smile fixed on her face as she thinks to herself, is this as low as I've ever been? (laughs) Have I hit the bottom now? At age 22, and now the only way is up. She hopes so, she thinks, as she turns and goes to fetch the oranges. Hunter Doig's best trick is to juggle six oranges simultaneously. Bethany now knows that even for a competent juggler, five balls in the air is a challenge. The fact that Hunter can do six while riding on an immobile unicycle puts him in a different juggling league. The Indian clubs hit the cobbled paving of the Covent Garden piazza with a dull clatter as Bethany lets them fall. The crowd whistles and cheers. Bethany, the oranges. Hunter calls and Bethany steps forward in her silly Piero costume with a plunging neckline and throws the oranges artlessly over Hunter's head. Laughter. She runs around and picks it up. She was never good at throwing and Hunter milks her ineptitude for a lot of random hilarity before the finale of his act. It is amazing, Bethany thinks, to see the near blur of six oranges passing through Hunter's whirring hands and circling in a tall oval in front of his fiercely concentrating face. He can only keep it going for a few seconds, and as he tires, he heads the oranges into the crowd until he's just left with two, and then one, This is still juggling, you know, Hunter yells, juggling with one orange, throwing it up with one hand into the air and catching it with the other. Try it at home. More laughter. Bethany feels the dread mount in her throat like vomit as she knows what's coming next. Hunter flings the last orange into the crowd and takes off his top hat to genuine admiring applause. Then he spin throws the top hat like a strange kind of frisbee to Bethany and, of course, she drops it. Yes, whoop and laugh and boo at the inept assistant, Bethany thinks to herself, keeping her smile in place and hoping she isn't blushing too much. She always blushes as she moves amongst the people collecting their donations, the coins and occasional notes falling to the dark, sweaty crown of the topper. I'm really no more than a kind of beggar, Bethany realizes as she collects the money. I can go no lower than this. Bethany has told her various friends that Hunter is her new boyfriend, after Sholto, after Casimir's, and that she has moved in with him. This is true, she supposes, but the reality is that she has moved in with Hunter and his brother, Calder. They share a large ground floor front room in a house in Stockwell. She unlocks the door of the room and dumps the unicycle and the bag of juggling gear on the floor. Hunter has gone to an audition. Bethany vaguely resents having to cart everything back to Stockwell from Covent Garden, but Hunter has given her 40 pounds, her share of the day's take, so she reckons it would have been graceless to have refused. 
She's still feeling obscurely down, so she goes to the house's communal bathroom on the first floor landing and, locking herself in, indulges in a brief cry. What is it about life, she wonders vaguely, that makes it so hard for it to turn out the way you want it to? Always surprises, always things coming at you out of the blue. She wants a life with no surprises, she tells herself, at least for a month or so. She sits on the toilet seat, dries her eyes, and gives herself a talking to. Don't be such a wimp, she admonishes herself. You're a photographer, she says. You have a self-published book of photographs. Art isn't easy. Many artists struggle and have to do other jobs before they're recognized. She looks at herself in the mirror, drags her fingers through her hair, releasing it, making it big and full. Pouts, puts on some lipstick. She points her finger at the mirror. You're not only talented, girl. You're fucking beautiful as well, she says to her reflection. Coming down the stairs, she can hear the TV is on in the room. Hunter must be back, she thinks, and goes in feeling better, wanting to hold Hunter's stocky, muscled body to her, wanting to go to the pub and spend some of her money on powerful alcoholic drinks. But it isn't Hunter. It's Calder, sitting slumped in front of the TV. Calder is in the street theatre business also. He's a living statue. His speciality is man in a hurry. Standing frozen for minutes as an urgently striding man, his face a white mask of makeup, his long, thick hair lacquered like stone, streaming in unmoving horizontal curls off the back of his head, his stiffened tie whipped around his neck, his stiffened jacket fronts folded back as if he's walking into a fresh breeze as he stands there, trapped forever in mid-pace, a rolled-up, clutched newspaper in one hand, as if he's rushing, late for a train. It's a very effective living statue, so different from the boring, immobile, grey or gold simulated public statuary that is the norm. Calder makes a lot of money playing man in a hurry, and Beth- Bethany admires the mental discipline that he has to summon up to hold that pose, minutes on end, that petrified dash going nowhere. Story of her life, she thinks. Hi, Calder, Bethany says. He grunts, eyes on the news. He's still in his full man-in-a-hurry get-up. Stiff hair streaming back from his head, white face, tie whipped around his neck. He seems reluctant to change from this persona and clean himself up. He'll sit around for hours like this, a fact that annoys Bethany, she has to admit. Bethany isn't sure if Calder welcomes her presence here in the room he used to share with his brother. He's put a kind of hospital screen around his bed. When she and Hunter make love, as quietly as possible, Hunter assures her that Calder wouldn't mind anyway, even if he could hear what was going on, which he can't. Bethany makes a cup of tea. They don't have a kitchen in the room, but there is an electric kettle, a toaster, and an electric ring on top of a scarred chest of drawers that allows them to make snacks. Most of the time they eat out or bring home takeaways. Bethany pours in the milk, having thoroughly sniffed the carton first, and stirs her mug of tea, sensing an extraordinary lassitude spreading through her. Bethany? She jumps. Calder has silently appeared by the scarred chest of drawers with his white face and horizontal hair, his stiff tie around his throat. Hey, Calder, Bethany says. Gave me a shot there, mate. Sorry, he says, touching his stiff hair and tie. Fancy a cup of tea, Bethany says. No, thanks, he says. Bethany picks up her mug, sips her tea, and holds it to her chest. So, how was your day, Calder, she asks. 
Calder thinks his white mask face utterly deadpan. I love you, Bethany, he says softly, his voice cracking. I love you, he repeats as Hunter comes in the door. Uh Uh-oh. That's it. Thank you very much. I'm Mr. Ed Stoppard. <laughs> this is called More Than Just a House. This was the sort of thing Lou was used to, and he'd been around a good deal already. You came into an entrance hall, sometimes narrow New England colonial, sometimes cautiously spacious. Once in the hall, the host said, Claire, or Virginia, or darling, this is Mr. Lowry. The woman said, how do you do, Mr. Lowry? And Lou answered, how do you do, Mrs. Woman? Then the man suggested, how about a little cocktail? And Lou lifted his brows apart and said, fine, in a tone that implied, what hospitality, consideration, attention? Those delicious canapes, mmm, madam, what are they? Broiled feathers? Enough to spoil a stronger appetite than mine. But Lou was on his way up with six new suits of clothes, and he was getting into the swing of the thing. His name was up for a downtown club, and he had his eye on a very modern bachelor apartment full of wrought iron swinging gates, as if he were a baby inclined to topple downstairs, when he saved the life of the Gunther girl, and his tastes underwent revision. This was back in 1925, before the Spanish-American... No, before whatever it is that has happened since then. The Gunther girls had got off the train on the wrong side and were walking along arm-in-arm with Amanda in the path of an approaching donkey engine. Amanda was rather tall, golden and proud, and the donkey engine was very squat and dark and determined. Lou had no time to speculate upon their respective chances in the approaching encounter. He lunged at Jean, who was nearest him, and as the two sisters clung together, startled, He pulled Amanda out of the iron pathway by such a hair's breadth that a piston cylinder touched her coat. And so Lou's taste was changed in regard to architecture and interior decoration. At the Gunther house, they served tea, hot or iced, sugar buns, gingerbread, and hot rolls at half past four. When he first went there, he was embarrassed by his heroic status for about five minutes. Then he learned that during the Civil War, the grandmother had been saved by her own grandmother from a burning house in Montgomery County, that father had once saved ten men at sea and been recommended for the Carnegie Medal, that when Jean was little, a man had saved her from the surf at Cape May, that, in fact, all the Gunthers had gone on saving and being saved for the last 50 years, and that their real debt to Lou was that now there would be no gap left in the tradition. This was on the very wide, vine-curtained veranda. The first thing I'd do would be to tear off that monstrosity, said a visiting architect, which almost completely bounded the big square box of the house, circa 1880. The sisters, three of them, appeared now and then during the time Lou drank tea and talked to the older people. He was only 26 himself, and he wished Amanda would stay uncovered long enough for him to talk at her. 
to look at her. But only Bess, the 16-year-old sister, was really in sight. In front of the two others interposed a white flannel screen of young men. It was the quickness, said Mr. Gunther, pacing the long straw rug, that second of coordination. Suppose you tried to warn them. Never. Your subconscious mind saw, saw that they would join together, saw that if you pulled one, you pulled them both. One second, one thought, one motion. I remember in 1904, won't Mr. Lowry have another piece of gingerbread? asked the grandmother. Father, why don't you show Mr. Lowry the apostle's spoons, Bess proposed. What? Her father stopped pacing. Is Mr. Lowry interested in old spoons? Lou was thinking at the moment of Amanda twisting somewhere between the glare of the tennis courts and the shadow of the veranda through all the warmth and graciousness of the afternoon. Spoons? Uh, oh, I've got a spoon, thank you. Apostle spoons, Bess explained. Father has one of the best collections in America. When he likes anybody enough, he shows them the spoons. I thought, since you saved Amanda's life... He saw a little of Amanda that afternoon, talked to her for a moment by the steps while a young man standing near tossed up a tennis racket and caught it by the handle with an impatient bend of his knees at each catch. The sun shopped among the yellow strands of her hair, poured around the rosy tan of her cheeks and spun along the arms that she regarded abstractedly as she talked to him. It's hard to thank a person for saving your life, Mr. Lowry, she said. Maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe it wasn't worth saving. Oh, yes, it was, said Lou in a spasm of embarrassment. Well, I'd like to think so. She turned to the young man. Was it, Alan? It's a good enough life, Alan admitted, if you go in for woolly blondes. She turned her slender smile full upon Lou for a moment and then aimed it at a, a little aside, like a pocket torch that might dazzle him. I'll always feel that you own me, Mr. Lowry. My life is forfeit to you. You'll always have the right to take me back and put me down in front of that engine again. Her proud mouth was a little overgracious about being saved, though Lou didn't realize it. It seemed to Amanda that it might at least have been someone in her own crowd. The Gunthers were a haughty family, haughty beyond all logic, because Mr. Gunther had once been presented at the Court of St. James's and remained slightly convalescent ever since. Even Bess was haughty, and it was Bess, eventually, who led Lou down to his car. It's a nice place, she agreed. We've been going to modernize it, but we took a vote and decided to have the swimming pool repaired instead. Lou's eyes lifted over her. She was like Amanda except for the slightness of her and the childish disfigurement of a small wire across her teeth. Up to the house, with its decorative balconies outside the windows, its fickle gables, its gold-lettered Swiss chalet mottos, the bulging projections of its many bays. Uncritically, he regarded it. It seemed to him one of the finest houses he had ever known. Of course, we're miles from town, but there's always plenty of people. Father and mother go south after the Christmas holidays when we go back to school. It was more than just a house, Lou decided as he drove away. It was a place where a lot of different things could go on at once. A private life for the older people, a private romance for each girl. 
Promoting himself, he chose his own corner, a swinging seat behind one of the drifts of vines that cut the veranda into quarters. But this was in 1925, when the 10,000 a year that Lou had come to command did not permit an indiscriminate crossing of social frontiers. He was received by the Gunthers and held at arm's length by them, and then gradually liked for the qualities that began to show through his awkwardness. A good-looking man on his way up can put directly into action the things he learns. Lou was never again quite so impressed by the suburban houses whose children lived upon rolling platforms in the street. It was September before he was invited to the Gunthers on an intimate scale, and this largely because Amanda's mother insisted upon it. He saved your life. I want him asked to this one little party. But Amanda had not forgiven him for saving her life. It's just a dance for friends, she complained. Let him come to Jean's debut in October. Everybody will think he's a business acquaintance of father's. After all, you can be nice to somebody without falling into their arms. Mrs. Gunther translated this correctly as, you can be awful to somebody without knowing it, and brusquely overrode her. You can have advantages without responsibilities, she said shortly. Life had been opening up so fast for Lou that he had a black dinner coat instead of a purple one. Asked for dinner, he came early, and thinking to give him his share of attention when it was most convenient, Amanda walked with him into the tangled, out-of-hand garden. She wanted to be bored, but his gentle vitality disarmed her, made her look at him closely for almost the first time. I hear everywhere that you're a young man with a future, she said. Lou admitted it. He boasted a little. He did not tell her that he had analyzed the spell which the Gunther house exerted upon him. His father had been a gardener on a similar Maryland estate when he was a boy of five. His mother had helped him to remember that when he told her about the Gunthers. And now this garden was shot bright with sunset, with Amanda one of its own flowers in her flowered dress. He told her in a rush of emotion how beautiful she was, and Amanda, excited by the prospect of impending hours with another man, let herself encourage him. Lou had never been so happy as in the moment before she stood up from the seat and put her hand on his arm lightly. I do like you, she said. You're very handsome. Do you know that? The harvest dance took place in an L-shaped space formed by the clearing of three rooms. Thirty young people were there, and a dozen of their elders. But there was no crowding, for the big windows were open to the veranda, and the guests danced against the wide, illimitable night. A country orchestra alternated with the phonograph. There was mildly calculated cider punch, and an air of safety beside the open bookshelves of the library and the oil portraits of the living room, as though this were one of an endless series of dances that had taken place here in the past and would take place again. Thought you never would cut in, Beth said to Lou. You'd be foolish not to. I'm the best dancer of us three, and I'm much the smartest one. Jean is the jazzy one, the most chic, but I think it's passe to be jazzy and play the traps and neck every second boy. Amanda is the beauty, of course, but I'm going to be the Cinderella, Mr. Lowry. They'll be the two wicked sisters, and gradually you'll find I'm the most attractive and get all hot and bothered about me. There was an interval of intervals before Lou could maneuver Amanda to his chosen segment of the porch. She was all radiant and shimmering, 
More than content to be with him, she tried to relax with the creak of the settee. Then instinct told her that something was about to happen. Lou, remembering a remark of Jean's, he asked me to marry him and he hadn't even kissed me, could yet think of no graceful way to assault Amanda. Nevertheless, he was determined to tell her tonight that he was in love with her. This all seems sudden, he ventured, but you might as well know. Please put me down on the list of those who would like to have a chance. She was not surprised, but being deep in herself at the moment, she was rather startled. Giving up the idea of relaxing, she sat upright. Mr. Lowry, can I call you by your first name? Can I tell you something? No, no, I won't. Yes, I will, because I like you now. I didn't like you at first. How's that for frankness? Is that what you wanted to tell me? No, listen. You met Mr. Horton, the man from New York, the tall man with the rather odd-looking hair? Yes. Lou felt a pang of premonition in his stomach. I'm engaged to him. You're the first to know, except Mother suspects. Whee! Now I told you because you saved my life, so you do sort of own me. I wouldn't be here to be engaged except for you. Then she was honestly surprised at his expression. Heavens, don't look like that. She regarded him, pained. Don't tell me you've been secretly in love with me all these months. Why, why didn't I know? And now it's too late. Lou tried to laugh. I, I hardly know you, he confessed. I haven't had time to fall in love with you. Maybe I work quick. Anyhow, if you did, you'll have to forget it and be my friend. Finding his hand, she squeezed it. I only saw her four times, he said to himself. Four times isn't much. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. What could I expect in four times? I shouldn't feel anything at all. But he was engulfed by fear. What had he just begun to know that now he might never know? What had happened in these moments in the garden this afternoon? What was the excitement that had blacked out in the instant of its birth? The scarcely emergent young image of Amanda. He did not want to carry it with him forever. Gradually, he realized the truth behind his grief. He had come too late for her. Unknown to him, she had been slipping away through the years. With the odds against him, he had managed to found himself on solid rock, and then, looking around for the girl, discovered that she had just gone. Sorry, just gone out, just left, just gone. Too late in every way, even for the house. It was the house of a childhood from which the three girls were breaking away, the house of an older generation, sufficient unto them. To a younger generation, it was pervaded with an aura of completion and fulfillment beyond their own power to add to. It was just old. Nevertheless, he recalled the emptiness of many grander mansions built in more spectacular fashions, empty to him at any rate, since he had first seen the Gunther place three months before. Something humanly valuable would vanish with the breakup of this family. The house itself, designed for reading long Victorian novels around an open fire of the evening, didn't even belong to an architectural period worthy of restoration. Standing square in front of the house, Lou looked at it more searchingly. He felt a kinship with it, 
not precisely that, for the house's usefulness was almost over and his was just beginning. Rather, the sense of superior unity that the thoughtful young feel for the old. Sense of the grandparent. More than only a house. He would, he would like to be that much used up himself before being thrown out on the ash heap at the end. And then, because he wanted to do some courteous service to it while he could, if only to dance with the garrulous little sister, he pulled a brash pocket comb through his hair and went inside. The man with the smiling scar approached Lou once more. This is probably, he announced, the biggest party ever given in New York. I even heard you the first time you told me, agreed Lou cheerfully. But on the other hand, qualified the man, I thought the same thing at a party two years ago in 1927. Probably they'll go on getting bigger and bigger. And you play polo, don't you? Only in the backyard, Lewis assured him. I'm a serious businessman. Somebody told me you were the polo star. The man was somewhat disappointed. I'm a rider myself, a, humani a humanitarian. I've been trying to help out a girl over there in that room where the champagne is. She's a lady, and yet, by golly, she's the only one in the room that can take care of herself. Never try to take care of anybody, Lou advised him. They hate you for it. For a moment, he did not recognize the girl who had assumed the role of entertaining the glassy-eyed citizenry, chosen by natural selection to personify dissolution. Then, as she issued a blanket invitation to a squad of gaiety beauties to come south and recuperate on her Maryland estates, he recognized Jean Gunther. She was the dark Gunther, dark and shining and driven. Lou, living in New York now, had seen none of the family since Amanda's marriage four years ago. Driving her home a quarter of an hour later, he extracted what news he could, and then left her in the dawn at the door of her apartment, must and awry, yet still proud, and tottering with absurd formality as she thanked him and said good night. He called next afternoon and took her to tea in Central Park. I am, she informed him, the child of the century. Other people claim to be the child of the century, but I'm actually the child of the century, and I'm having the time of my life at it. Thinking back to another period of young men on the tennis courts and hot buns in the afternoon, and of wisteria and ivy climbing along the ornate railings of a veranda, Lou became as moral as it was possible to be in that well-remembered year of 1929. What are you getting out of it? Why don't you invest in some reliable man? Just a sort of background. Men are good to invest money for you, she dodged neatly. Last year, one darling spun out my allowance so it lasted ten months instead of three. But how about marrying some candidate? I haven't got any love, she said. Actually, I know four, five. I know six millionaires I could maybe marry. This little girl from Carroll County. It's just too many. Now, if somebody that had everything came along, she looked at Lou appraisingly. You've improved, for example. I should say I have, admitted Lou, laughing. I even go to first nights. But the most beautiful thing about me is I remember my old friends, and among them are the lovely Gunther girls of Carroll County. 
You're very nice, she said. Were you terribly in love with Amanda? I thought so, anyhow. I saw her last week. She's super Park Avenue and very busy having Park Avenue babies. She considers me rather disreputable and tells her friends about our magnificent plantation in the Old South. Do you ever go down to Maryland? Do I, though? I'm going Sunday night and spend two months there saving enough money to come back on. When Mother died, she paused. I suppose you knew Mother died. I came into a little cash, and I've still got it, but it has to be stretched, see? She pulled her napkin corner-wise. By tactful investing, I think the next step is a quiet summer on the farm. Lou took her to the theater the next night, oddly excited by the encounter. The wild flush of the times lay upon her. He was conscious of her physical pulse going at some abnormal rate, but most of the young women he knew were being hectic, save the ones caught up tied in domesticity. He had no criticism to make. Behind that lay the fact that he would not have dared to criticize her. Having climbed from a nether rung of the ladder, he had perforce based his standards on what he could see from where he was at the moment. Far be it from him to tell Jean Gunther how to order her life. Getting off the train in Baltimore three weeks later, he stepped into the peculiar heat that usually preceded an electric storm. He passed up the regular taxis and hired a limousine for the long ride out to Carroll County. And as he drove through rich foliage, moribund in midsummer, between the white fences that lined the rolling road, many years fell away, and he was again the young man, starved for a home, who had first seen the Gunther House four years ago. Since then, he had occupied a 12-room apartment in New York, rented a summer mansion on Long Island, but his spirit, warped by loneliness and grown gypsy with change, turned back persistently to this house. Inevitably, it was smaller than he had expected. A small, big house, roomy rather than spacious. There was a rather intangible neglect about it. The color of the house had never been anything but a brown-green relic of the sun. Lou had never known the stable to lean otherwise than as the Tower of Pisa, nor the garden to grow any other way than plebeian and wild. Jean and Bess were waiting over a cocktail on the porch. It struck him that Bess had made a leaping change out of childhood into something that was not quite youth. About her beauty, there was a detachment, almost an impatience, as though she had not asked for the gift and considered it rather a burden. To a young man, the gravity of her face might have seemed formidable. "'How's your father?' Lou asked. "'He won't be down tonight,' Bess answered. "'He's not well. He's over 70, you know. People tire him. When we have guests, he has dinner upstairs.' Momentarily, Jean looked at Lou as if she thought the situation was faintly humorous, but at his concerned face, she continued seriously. "'You might as well know. It's senile dementia. Not dangerous. Sometimes he's absolutely himself.' But it's hard on Bess. After dinner, Lou and Jean went into the garden, splattered with faint drops before the approaching rain. Through the vivid green twilight, Lou followed her long dress, spotted with bright red roses. It was the first of that fashion he had ever seen. In the tense hush, he had an illusion of intimacy with her, as though they shared the secrets of many years, and when she caught at his arm suddenly at a rumble of thunder... 
he drew her around slowly with his other arm and kissed her shaped, proud mouth. Well, at least you've kissed one Gunther girl, Jean said lightly. How was it? And don't you think you're taking advantage of us, being unprotected out here in the country? He looked at her to see if she were joking, and with a swift laugh, she seized his arm again. It was raining in earnest, and they fled toward the house to find Bess on her knees in the library, setting light to an open fire. Father's all right, she assured them. I don't like to give him the medicine till the last minute. He's worrying about some man that lent him $20 in 1892. She lingered, conscious of being a third party, and yet impelled to play her mother's role and impart an initial solidarity before she retired. The storm broke, shrieking in white at the windows, and Bess took the opportunity to fly to the windows upstairs, calling down after a moment. The telephone's trying to ring. Do you think it's safe to answer it? Perfectly, Jean called back, or else they wouldn't ring. She came close to Lewis in the center of the room, away from the white, quivering windows. A bland, beautiful expression stared back at him. But his ears lifted suddenly up the stairs to Bess, still struggling with the phone. All right, I'll, I'll try to take it that way. P-A-S-S-E-D. P-A-S-S-E-D. All right. A-W-A-Y. Passed away? Her voice, as she put the phrase together, shook with sudden panic. What did you say? Amanda Gunther passed away? Jean looked at Lou with funny eyes. Why does Bess try to take that message now? Why not? Shut up, he ordered. This is something serious. I don't see... Alarmed by the silence that seeped down the stairs, Lou ran up and found Bess sitting beside the telephone table, holding the receiver in her lap, just breathing and staring, breathing and staring. He took the receiver and got the message. Amanda passed away quietly, giving life to a little boy. Lou tried to raise Bess from the chair, but she sank back, full of dry sobbing. Don't tell father tonight. How did it matter if this was added to that old store of confused memories? It mattered to Bess, though. Go away, she whispered. Go tell Jean. Some premonition had reached Jean, and she was at the foot of the stairs while he descended. What's the matter? He guided her gently back into the library. Amanda's dead, he said, still holding her. She gathered up her forces and began to wail, but he put his hand over her mouth. You've been drinking, he said. You've got to pull yourself together. You can't put anything more on your sister. Jean pulled herself together visibly, first her proud mouth and then her whole body. But what might have seemed heroic under other conditions seemed to Lou only reptilian, a fine animal effort. All he had begun to feel about her went out in a few ticks of the clock. In two hours, the house was quiet under the simple ministrations of a retired cook whom Bess had sent for. Jean was put to sleep with a sedative by a physician from Ellicott City. It was only when Lou was in bed at last that he thought really of Amanda and broke suddenly, and only for a moment. She was gone out of the world, his second, no, his third love, killed in single combat. He thought rather of the dripping garden outside and nature so suddenly innocent in the clearing night. 
If he had not been so tired, he would have dressed and walked through the long-stemmed, clinging ferns and looked once more impersonally at the house and its inhabitants, the broken old, the youth breaking and growing old with it, the other youth escaping into dissipation. It's degenerate business, he decided, all this hanging on to the past. I've been wrong. Some of us are going ahead, and these people on the roof over them are just pushovers for time. I'll be glad to leave it for good and get back to something fresh and new and clean in Wall Street tomorrow. Lou's business took him frequently to Baltimore, but with the years it seemed to change back into the Baltimore that he had known before he met the Gunthers. He thought of them often, but after the night of Amanda's death, he never went there. By 1933, the role that the family had played in his life seemed so remote, except for the unforgettable fact that they had formed his ideas, ideas about how life was lived, that he could drive along the Frederick Road to where it dips into Carroll County before a feeling of recognition crept over him. Impelled by a formless motive, he stopped his car. It was deep summer. A rabbit crossed the road ahead of him, and a squirrel did acrobatics on an arched branch. The Gunther house was up the next crossroad and five minutes away. In half an hour, he could satisfy his curiosity about the family. Yet he hesitated. With painful consequences, he had once tried to repeat the past. And now, in normal times, he would have driven on with a feeling of leaving the past well behind him. But he had come to realize recently that life was not always a progress, nor a search for new horizons, nor a going away. The Gunthers were part of him. He would not be able to bring to new friends the exact things that he had brought to the Gunthers. If the memory of them became extinct, then something in himself became extinct also. The squirrels flight on the branch, the wind nudging at the leaves, the cock splitting distant air, the creep of sunlight transpiring through the immobility, lulled him into an adolescent trance and he sprawled back against the leather for a moment without problems. He loafed for ten minutes before the kadup, kadup, kadup of a walking horse came around the next bend of the road. The horse bore a girl in jodhpur breeches, and bending forward, Lou recognized Bess Gunther. He scrambled from the car. The horse shied as Bess recognized Lou and pulled up. Why, Mr. Lowry? Hey, whoa, whoa there, girl. Where did you arrive from? Did you break down? It was a lovely face, and a sad face, but it seemed to Lou that some new quality made it younger, as if she had finally abandoned the cosmic sense of responsibility which had made her seem older than her age four years ago. I was thinking about you all, he said, thinking of paying you a visit. Detecting a doubtful shadow in her face, he jumped to a conclusion and laughed. I don't mean a visit. I mean a call. I'm solvent. Sometimes you have to add that these days. She laughed, too. I was only thinking the house was full, and where would we put you? I'm bound for Baltimore, anyhow. Why not get off your rocking horse and sit in my car a minute? She tied the mare to a tree and got him beside him. He had not realized that flashing fairness could last so far into the 20s. Only when she didn't smile... He saw from three small, thoughtful lines that she was always a grave girl. He had a quick recollection of Amanda on an August afternoon. And looking at Bess, he recognized all that he remembered of Amanda. How's your father? 
father died last year. He was bedridden the year before he died. Her voice was in the sing-song of something often repeated. It was just as well. I'm sorry. How about Jean? Where is she? Jean married a Chinaman. I mean, she married a man who lives in China. I've never seen him. Do you live alone then? No, there's my aunt. She hesitated. Anyhow, I'm getting married next week. Inexplicably, he had the old sense of loss in his diaphragm. Congratulations. Who's the unfortunate? From Philadelphia. The whole party went over to the races this afternoon. I wanted to have a last ride with Juniper. Will you live in Philadelphia? Not sure. We're thinking of building another house on the place, tear down the old one. Of course, we might remodel it. Would that be worth doing? Why not? She said hastily. We could use some of it, the architects think. You're fond of it, aren't you? Best considered. I wouldn't say it was just my idea of modernity, but I'm a sort of a homegirl. She accentuated the words ironically. I never went over very big in Baltimore, you know, the family failure. I never had the sort of thing Amanda and Jean had. Maybe you didn't want it. I thought I did when I was young. The mare neighed peremptorily, and Bess backed out of the car. So that's the story, Lou Lowry, of the last Gunther girl. You always did have a sort of yen for us, didn't you? <laughs> didn't I? If I could possibly stay in Baltimore, I'd, I'd insist on coming to your wedding. At the lost expression on her face, he wondered to whom she was handing herself, a very precious self. He knew more about people now, and he felt the steel beneath the softness in her the girder showing through the gentle curves of cheek and chin. She was an exquisite person, and he hoped that her husband would be a good man. When she had ridden off into a green lane, he drove tentatively toward Baltimore. This was the end of a human experience, and it released old images that regrouped themselves about him. If he had married one of the sisters, supposing. The past, slipping away under the wheels of his car, crunched awake his acuteness. Perhaps I was always an intruder in that family. But why on earth was that girl riding in bedroom slippers? At the crossroads store, he stopped to get cigarettes. A young clerk searched the case with country slowness. Big wedding up at the Gunther place, Lou remarked. Huh? Miss Beth's getting married? Next week. The wedding party's there now. Well, I'll be dog. Wonder why they're going to sleep on since Mark H. Bourne took the furniture away. What's that? What? A month ago, Mark H. Bourne took all the furniture and everything else while Miss Bess was out riding. They mortgaged on it just before Gunther died. They say around here she ain't got a stitch except them riding clothes. Mark H. Bourne was good and sore. His claim was they sold off all the best pieces of furniture without his knowing it. Now, that's ten cents, I owe you. What does she and her aunt live on? Never heard about an aunt. Well, I've only been here a year. She works the truck garden herself. All she buys from us is sugar, salt, and coffee. Anything was possible these times. Yet Lou wondered what incredibly fantastic pride had inspired her to tell that lie. He turned his car around and drove back to the Gunther place. It was a desperately forlorn house he came to and a jungle garden. One side of the veranda had slipped from the brick pillars and sloped to the ground. 
A shingle job, begun and abandoned, rotted paintless on the roof. A broken pane gaped from the library window. Lou went in without knocking. A voice challenged him from the dining room, and he walked towards it, his feet loud on the rugless floor, through rooms empty of stick and book, empty of all save casual dust. Bess Gunther, wearing the cheapest of house dresses, rose from the packing box on which she sat, with fright in her eyes. A tin spoon rattled on the box she was using as a table. "'Have you been kidding me?' he demanded. "'Are you actually living like this?' It's you. She smiled in relief. Then, with visible effort, she spurred herself into amenities. Take a box, Mr. Lowry. Have a canned good box. They're superior. The grain is better. And welcome to the open spaces. Have a cigar, a glass of champagne. Have some rabbit stew and meet my fiancé. Stop that. All right, she agreed. Why didn't you go and live with some relatives? Haven't got any relatives. Jeans in China. What are you doing? What do you expect to happen? I was waiting for you, I guess. What do you mean? You always seem to turn up. I thought if you turned up, I'd make a play for you. And when it came to the point, I thought I'd better lie. I seemed to lack the essay my sisters had. Lou pulled her up from the box and held her with his fingers by her waist. Not to me. In the hours since Lou had met her on the road, the vitality seemed to have gone out of her. She looked up at him, very tired. So you like the Gunthers, she whispered. You liked us all. Lou tried to think, but his heart beat so quick that he could only sit her back on the box and pace along the empty walls. We'll get married, he said. I don't know whether I love you. I don't even know you. I know the notion of your being in want or trouble makes me physically sick. Suddenly he went down on both knees in front of her, so that she would not seem so unbearably small and helpless. Miss Bess, Gunther, so it was you I was meant to love all the while. He took her hand. She drew it back instinctively and then replaced it in his. Beg your pardon. Not even used to being touched. But I'm not afraid of you, if you stay quiet and don't move suddenly. He saw that the love in her was all encrusted with the sacrificial years and and that he would have to be gardener to it for a while. The task seemed attractive. You lovely, he told her. You lovely. We'll survive, you and I, because you're so nice and I'm so convinced about it. They went out together. Bess changed into her writing habit, but there wasn't another article that she wanted to bring with her. Backing through the clogging weeds of the garden, Lou looked at the house over his shoulder. Next week or so, we'll decide what to do about that. It was a bright sunset, the creep of rosy light that played across the blue fenders of the car and across their crazily happy faces moved across the house, too. Across the paralyzed door of the ice house, the rusting tin gutters, the loose swinging shutter the cracked cement of the front walk, the burned place of last year's rubbish back of the tennis court. Whatever its further history, the whole human effort of collaboration was done now. The purpose of the house was achieved, finished and folded. It was an effort towards some commonweal, an effort difficult to estimate. So closely does it press against us still.
Thanks. Um, my name's Kate, um, and I'm the curator of Sensing Spaces here. Um, and I've been invited to say a couple of words of thanks. Um, and it probably wasn't the best thing, because I feel completely speechless after that. Um, and I'm not sure if you share the sen same sensations. Um, but a sincere thanks to both of you. I think, for me, it brought very much the sense of the power of words and storytelling, which is exactly what Pin Drop is about. And I think it's until you experience one of these events, you don't really know what it is. Um, and what a gift, William, thank you. I mean, I think I sat there in this moment of sitting there and realizing that you have an author reading his own work that's still on a bit of paper. Um, and that's a rare and incredible experience. And that was really amazing. Thank you. And thank you, Elizabeth, for encouraging to do the second story because I kind of, I was really wanting to hear where Bethany went from being a photographer and nice to found find someone found love. I want to kind of keep reading her stories, I think. Um, and it, that was amazing. Um, and I had some notes that I might try and find. Um, but just for me, I guess, thinking about architecture and spaces, I mean, I think that hearing the house almost having a presence in the background um, just dropped through the story just now and then, sort of the narrative just fell alongside it as the house went, became degraded. It was quite incredible. Um, and I think it sort of reminded me of something that I was reading of, you know, that a, a place, we visit, we go to a place and then that place stays within us. Um, and I thought that that, for me, became really resonant. You know, a space becomes quite resonant with association. And I don't think I'm ever going to be in this room underneath this structure by Pesa von Erichhausen without remembering this, this evening and what you've said. And it did bring to mind a conversation I had with um, Francis Kere, who is the um, um, Burkina Faso-born architect who's done the tunnel next year, if you've had the chance to see it. But we spoke very much about the idea of spaces and memories and childhood memories for him and tried to talk about a spatial experience. And for him, he ended up saying that for him, space was actually about the gathering of people. And he spoke about it being very dark. And I realized it was only when the filmmaker went down to Burkina Faso, she was talking about it from 6 o'clock, there is no light in Africa. And it becomes dark in a way that's so different. And what gave him a sense of space was the sort of warmth of bodies and that shared sense and the sense of a storytelling voice. And Ed, as you were talking, that sort of, I felt we're all connected so closely as sort of as the story unfolded and it was a really lovely resonance for me that made sense of what Francis had told me at that moment um, so it's a little rambling bit of things and then the exhibition is open for you to see it um, while it's around you and it really is about talking about those kind of sensations and emotions we have in spaces that are sometimes difficult to describe and which I think words find a way of getting there in a way that was just simply brilliant so thank you very much and thank you to Pindrop and to Alison for everyone for putting this evening together thank you both